God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey, everyone. This is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, messy conversations to join the conversation. And I hope to see you there. Nat Turney serves as lead pastor of Open Table Fellowship Church in San Angelo, Texas, where he resides with his wife of 28 years, Kimberly. He is a father of four grown children and a papa to two amazing grandsons. Nat is passionate about people and is dedicated to proclaiming the good news that God is fully and finally revealed in the person of Jesus. Welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Nat Turney. Man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, sir. I am really excited to have this conversation. You're somebody that I followed on social media for a while. And man, I just really think that you are one of the most life-giving, encouraging people uh, in all of social media. And so I'm so grateful to connect with you in real life here on the podcast. That, that means a lot coming from you. You're a, you're a guy I've followed for quite a while as well. And you know, I, I certainly paid attention to uh, what you were doing in Alabama and uh, was a big fan of your approach to ministry as well. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you, man. Tell me about your spiritual upbringing. Where did faith start for you? You know, it's a uh, it's really interesting because I can't remember a time um, where faith wasn't part of my life and my journey. It just was sort of inherited. And so we grew up, my brother and I, and my sister as well, uh, we just grew up in a house that was um, steeped in that in that tradition, you know. I will say that church was not always a huge part of that. We weren't the most faithful churchgoers. Uh, we did bounce around from time to time, from church to church. And so I have a, a little bit of a mixed bag as far as my um, my church history goes, if that makes sense. Spent some time in some very charismatic, holy roller type churches. Spent some time in some more traditional mainline denomination churches. And so I've had kind of a plethora of experiences as far as that goes. So was there a point during your upbringing where you started to own a faith of your own that was not just, you know, the exposure of the faith of your parents? Sadly, not really, you know, and that, that's part of my, that's part of my developmental process and why it took so long for me to to do the things that I've done recently is because I just sort of accepted, I guess faith is the right word, I accepted on faith so much of what was handed to me. And uh, I'm just, I, I didn't question a bunch, you know, and for so much of my life, my identity was so wrapped up in my faith system and my belief that that the thought of discarding or even questioning any of that was terrifying. And so I, I really didn't until much, much later down the road. Well, I definitely want to dive into that in just a minute. But at what point in your life did you first feel a call to some sort of ministry within the local church? 
that started uh, very young. Music has always been a huge part of my life, and so my brother and I have been, John and I have played in bands together forever, and I don't know that we've ever played in any kind of band that was not a Christian band. I mean, it was always just sort of assumed that we would be, you know, Christian artists, and that was that was kind of our deal. When John departed the church, you know, 25 years ago, whatever it was, it was as a result to some degree of, of stuff that had happened within our band and, you know, arguments we'd had about faith and God. And, but I felt the call to ministry um, from, from a very early, early age, although the thought of being a pastor did then and still does scare the hell out of me. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think anyone who enters into this line of work, you know, glibly or cavalierly is just that they're just setting themselves up for, for, pain and misery so yeah so i i pursued ministry more in the music i was a music minister forever you know and um, when the uh the term worship pastor began to kind of be in vogue i i I quickly jumped on that bandwagon and said well yeah i'm a pastor of music which is something i could wrap my head around you know what kind of de- uh, denominational context was that? Uh, that was just within a, a non-denominational church. When I moved to Texas in 2001, I got immediately hooked up with a sort of charismatic non-denominational church in San Angelo, where I was part, where I was apart for about seven years. And really, the result of that relationship with that church is what started me on the road to some deconstruction because it, it blew my life apart. Let's talk about that. What did that blowing apart look like for you? Well, it it, it was one of those things. That the relationship became unhealthy. It began to invade every part of my life, if that makes sense. My wife and I and my family were, um, we wound up in a place where our livelihoods, our lives, our everything was wrapped up in, in the ministry. And, you know, six or seven days a week, we were in the building and it was one of it, it, it was inevitable at some point that when a thread got pulled, it was all going to come apart. And when we began to see some of the people in the leadership of that church for who they really were, how they treated people, how they discarded people, you know, without much of a thought, um, it began to really open our eyes to to some of the ugliness that church can be. So there was a, a situation where my wife and I were both working in the school that was attached to this church. And when we decided we could no longer be part of that church and we decided to move on down the road, it eventually led to the end of our both of our careers with that school as well. And it all just got it got very ugly and it got very personal. Sort of, like I said, started me down a road to questioning a bunch of things. What were some of those first questions? Well, my, I think my first question was, what is the what is the purpose of church at all? You know, I, I did begin to question the, the validity, the efficacy of of even a thing that we that we had called church now mind you i made that leap and then immediately jumped into another church so you know (laughs) i i was like what is the point of church and then i jumped back into another church and uh, now we'll say this the church that i jumped into was a fairly fresh church plant it was with a really good friend of mine we did begin to see a different potential for the way church could be could be handled and the way the church could be run so um i had a really good life-giving time there for the next several years and departed from them on good terms. Well, that's really important. And I definitely want to unpack that a little bit later, but sure. so you went through this season of spiritual shifting kind of, uh, it started at one church, you departed that church, almost immediately jumped into another. So you're, for lack of a better term, deconstructing while on staff at a local church. Is that correct? 100%. Yes. Okay. Now that's going to bring some challenges that are really hard to navigate. How did that work out for you? Well, here's the thing. It, it, 
my my deconstruction and I, I know that term is again is it's it's been used and overused so but it's still honestly for me it's still the best it's the best way to describe what it was mine was not accidental i did come to an epiphany i had an epiphany and at the age of i don't know man 41 or whatever it was i did have this sudden realization that i had never questioned any of my beliefs that the beliefs i held were beliefs that had been handed to me that I'd inherited without question. And I did have, I had, I had a realization that I, I, I had never owned my own faith. And so my deconstruction was intentional. It was destructive. It was, you know, it was a demolition more than a deconstruction. And I did sit across the table from the pastor of this church that I was serving and have a conversation with him. This is about a year or so, maybe two after I joined the church and been on staff. And I looked him in the face and I told him that I was going to burn it all down, that I would just wait and see what survived the fire. And I don't know that he knew what to do with that, but I was serious. And so I had been jumping into some different reading. I had, you know, Michael Harden had really impacted me greatly. Brian Zond had begun to infiltrate my brain with uh, thoughts of nonviolence and what that looks like as far as things like atonement theories and all this other stuff that I'd never even really even thought to think about too much before. And all of a sudden, like I said, it's a thread that gets pulled and everything just begins to come undone. And so I did, I, I, like I said, the, de the deconstruction was very intentional and somewhat catastrophic in some sense. And I just hoped and prayed that at the end of it, that Jesus would be there in the ashes. And thankfully he was. What did you lose in deconstruction? I lost, um, I lost certainty. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. Uh, I, I remember reading Peter Enns' book, The Sin of Certainty, a few years ago. And, and it struck me that you know, the opposite of faith is not fear. The opposite of faith is certainty. And so I did begin to shed that air of certainty. And then I began to read people like Richard Rohr, who seemed to push you towards embracing mystery. You know, and, and, and for much of my life, the idea of mystery was always a cop-out. How does this work? What's this deal? And, and the answer, you know, the glib sort of cliched response, well, it's a mystery. You can understand that. And Richard Rohr was the first person I heard say, you know, that, that a mystery doesn't mean you can't understand. It means that you can endlessly understand. The idea of jumping into something that is deep, something that is multi-layered, where, where you just keep uncovering truth and truth and truth. And it, it doesn't mean you stop digging. But um, I think it was Callisto Ware who said something along the lines of the task of Christianity is not to provide answers, but to, to lead us deeper into a mystery, that, that Christ is, is the cause of our wonder. And so we've lost this sense in the evangelical West that there's any wonder to God when we just stand on pat answers and, you know, our proof text Bible verses. You know, and so I, I lost certainty in all of that. that. That's my long answer to your short question. <laughs> what did you gain in deconstruction or reconstruction? What I gained was a, a healthier, I think anyway, a healthier perspective of the width and the breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had lived in such a way for so long that my view of everything was so narrowly crafted that anything outside my scope was just was heresy, you know, and Sadly and ironically, I couldn't have defined orthodoxy at that time, so I don't know what I was doing calling anything heresy. But there was there was this sense, and I, I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting, and, and maybe people who listen to the podcast aren't aware of of what a walk to Emmaus is. But I went on a, a thing called a walk to Emmaus, which is a ecumenical seventy uh, two hour spiritual retreat, and it's run by the Methodist Church, but it's very ecumenical. And so 
here I was a good evangelical charismatic Christian hanging out in this retreat center, the Catholic retreat center of all places, surrounded by people who are Methodist and Presbyterian and Catholic and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And my biases and my prejudices were on full display. Like I'm sitting here just going, who are these people and why am I doing any of this stuff? And what it did for me was was expose how narrow my view was. So what I gained from all of this, and it began, that, that really began the process, even though I wasn't aware that there was a process to begin yet. But it began me on this road to really kind of reorienting myself around what does the church really look like? And, and is there room for some diversity and some variety in the ways in which we approach church and God and everything like that? And so I gained a lot of, just gained a lot of perspective. Uh, a lot of us who have gone through deconstruction, reconstruction, we, we come out with a difficult, um, strained relationship with the scriptures. How do you relate to the scriptures today? <laughs> that is a really good question. For a little while, I just couldn't even look at them. You know, I just sort of stopped reading the Bible for a little while. And, and honestly, the big reason for that was because the, the, the Bible had been used for so long uh, as a weapon against me. I had to I had to reformulate my relationship with the scriptures and and not just against me, but I'd seen it used as weapons against somebody else, other people. And so as I begin to embrace the notion that the true word of God is Jesus, that the Bible is is a book and it's useful and it's helpful, but it's not, you know, it's not a deity. It's not the fourth person of the Trinity. Um, I, I guess you, another part of my deconstruction was shedding this notion of of biblical infallibility you know which is you know not something that most of the church world even embraces it's a very western evangelical mindset and uh, of course for those who are within it they think it's the end all be all and you know they're they're in the main line of the tradition but the fact of the matter is that outside of western evangelicalism people have a different relationship with scripture and i think it can be healthier to wrestle and to argue and to you know try and understand so my relationship with the scripture now is is that I can buy off on on a theory of inspiration. I'm fine with that. Uh, Greg Boyd does a really good job in his books of 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 dealing with you know the idea that that the Bible isn't the inspired words of God, but as far as infallible and perfect, and I, I can't buy that. How about Jesus? Where does Jesus fit into your faith today? Uh, Jesus is the linchpin, man. Jesus is the central part of it all, and I know that's a that creates a it does create a dynamic and a, and a juxtaposition with scripture when you say, well, I believe in Jesus. And, and then, well, what do I know of Jesus except through the scriptures? And so personal experience aside, you know, my personal experiences with Christ are, are one thing. So that, but I do have to reconcile that that most of what I know about Jesus comes from the scriptures. And so but here's the thing. Without Jesus, none of this makes any sense. Without Jesus, I don't even know what the point of any of it is. And so my prayer when I entered this deconstruction thing for me was as I took a blowtorch to everything, right, and decided to burn it all to the ground, I prayed, dear God, let, let Jesus be there at the bottom. Let him be there among the ashes. And to my delight and to my joy, he was. But what I found was the Jesus that was there in the ashes was not, was not the Jesus that I had thought I had known all my life. Well, talk about that. Let's contrast those. Well, the Jesus that I had been raised to believe in, the Jesus of Western evangelicalism, and I hate to beat on those guys too much, but I, I beat on them because I am them. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. I really can't, I can't take the Catholic church to task too much. I'm not Catholic. So I can beat up on my own tradition because I was raised in it and I bear the scars of it. And I know, I know what their failings and foibles are. So the Jesus of Western evangelicalism is Rambo. He's the one, yeah, he might've been meek and mild at one point, but he's coming back and he's pissed off, you know, and, and the Jesus who said, you know, love your enemy. Well, that was fine. But at the end of it all, he's going to lay waste to millions of people. And there's, you know, there, you know, these people who are out there spouting this garbage that Jesus is going to personally, you know, slaughter millions of people at the end of days. I mean, come on, man. Uh, I don't even know how you reconcile those things. So the Jesus that I found in my reconstruction was this Jesus who was inclusive. It was this Jesus who left the 99 to find the one um, who, you know, searched for the lost coin. And as Brad Jersak is fond of saying, he searched for them how long? until he found them. And so there is this great hope that the God who is willing that none should perish will have his way. That the Jesus who said, love your enemies, meant it and doesn't intend to, you know, destroy his at the end of time and burn them alive forever. It's just a Jesus who I know that a lot of Western evangelical preachers specifically say they can't follow because he's too meek and he's too mild. And he's, you know, I forget who it was who said it. One of the, the guy at Mars Hill um, who said, I can't worship that. Je- I can't worship a Jesus I can beat up. <laughs> like that you've missed, it, you know, <laughs> Mark Driscoll. That's the guy's name. See, I'm naming names because there's two Mars Hills. I got to be careful because Rob Bell was, you know, his back in the day, his church was, you know, that church still exists, but Mars Hill was in Michigan and that was, that was, but the Mark Driscoll's church in Seattle before it all went, you know, Tango Foxtrot, whatever was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Two totally different Mars Hills. And man, we owe a lot to the Rob Bell version. Oh, man. I owe, you know what? It's really funny as I look back and um, you bring up Rob Bell because I was in the middle of, it's weird how the, how the seeds get planted. I'm staunchly in my non-denominational church here in Texas, the, the, the first one that all, you know, blew everything to hell for me but i'm in the middle of that and i found rob bell and I began to listen to his podcast and this is like early 2000s right and so you know the numa videos and the you know the, the his podcast and his teachings and i was following him on you know at his church and i'm like this guy is ridiculous i love him what, what who i want to be this guy you know what i mean and then uh at some point in that time i also got handed a brennan manning book you know probably 2005 or 2006 i read ragamuffin gospel for the first time and and I liked it well enough, and I sort of set it aside. And then it percolated for the next 10 years. Uh, I almost got fired from my other church because I had the audacity to recommend a Brian McLaren book that I'd begun to read called A Generous Orthodoxy. And I said, I was excited about this book. And I, I brought it to my pastor, and I'm like, man, this is you should read this. This is really good. And he's like, you get that crap out of my office. And if that's the kind of stuff you want to preach, maybe you should leave too. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, maybe. Yep. But I still go back to that book because, you know, Brian McLaren, again, and I, I was nowhere near anywhere, anywhere near any kind of deconstruction phase. But the seeds were being planted, I'm convinced, of of revolt and rebellion against this, you know, this entity we call the evangelical church, even when I was staunchly in the middle of it. Yeah, I think those voices, so many that you've mentioned, um, Richard Rohr, Rob Bell. Brendan Manning, especially uh, Mike Iaconelli for me, those were people who let me know that it was okay to rethink some things, that things were not as cut and dry as I had thought they were all this time. And it was okay to start asking questions that I wasn't sure I was comfortable with potential answers for. 
And, and man, that took root in my life. And that just totally changed me. It sounds like it changed you as well. And I'm so grateful for those guys who had the courage to ask those questions. Oh, I am too. And that's a, that's, I'm a, and I'm a firm believer. I'm a big believer in questions. I just, I'm, I, I just love, I love questions. I, you know, ask me any why questions all the time. And I, I, I you've got my engine running, you know? So. so today, if somebody were to ask you, what is the gospel? What's your answer to that? Jesus is Lord. That's it. How does that uh, apply to our world today? It applies like this. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and the government is not. You know, it it, it lays waste to any kind of allegiance I might have had to a government or a philosophy or an ideology that's not steeped in love, that's not steeped in peace, that is not committed to the path of peace. Um, I'm really, really, I'm fed up to be honest with you, with the unholy union of, of religion and politics, of this wedding that we have to empire. And so when we declare that Jesus is Lord, it's, it's, it's so much more than a glib little statement that goes in the, on a bumper sticker. And we, you know, Jesus is Lord. Man, it's such a, it, it, it's a powerful political statement that says, you know, I, I, I bear, you know, I, I have no allegiance to the state. I have no allegiance to an ideology or a philosophy other than the way of peace is preached by Jesus, uh, then the, the kingdom of God as proclaimed by Jesus, and everything else uh, is, is secondary or tertiary to all of that. And so that to me is the gospel is simply that Jesus is Lord. Well, that really kind of challenges uh, a lot of our allegiance, as you said, uh, in the political structure that we live in. I think my tendency when I first experienced what you're talking about, Jesus is Lord, therefore Donald Trump is not. Jesus is Lord. For me, it was George W. Bush is not. Uh, Jesus is Lord, so Barack Obama is not. Now, my tendency was, okay, well, I've been a real conservative Republican who has completely aligned with war and empire and vengeance. And so now I'm going to flip over here and become a liberal um, and just take the opposing view because I've been on the wrong side. Is that the way to go or is there a third way? Uh, there's a third way. No, that's absolutely not the way to go. I've I've had experiences with both the uh, the left and the right, and to say that they're mirror images of one another is being generous. I've seen people chewed up and spit out by both sides of that political spectrum. The uh, the third way is the is the is the path of peace. It's the uh, I forget it. Might, yeah, Shane Claiborne. Have you read Shane Claiborne's book, The uh, Modern Liturgy for Modern Radicals? And uh, there's a quote in there about you know that there being the third way that's not the fight or flight. You know, it's this, it's this, it's this third way that pursues justice in such a way that, and I'm paraphrasing again, but, um, but it pursues justice in such a way that, that both the oppressed and the oppressor are restored. Yeah. I think, I think, um, so many of us who, who crave for justice, we get upset when we start talking about oppressors getting restored, but that is the third way. That is the Jesus way. Why do we have such a problem with that? I, we still haven't let go of our retributive religion. You know, um, you can be right or left and, ste- and still be steeped in retributive religion. And so uh, in this case, justice looks like the uh, the oppressed are set free and the oppressor gets what's coming to them. Um, I was reading through Bishop Tutu's book uh, for a sermon I preached last week. And if you haven't read the book of forgiving, it'll blow your mind. But at the end of apartheid, uh, when Bishop Tutu and Nelson Mandela is released from prison and they begin to form this new government and, and they had to decide 
in the very, very beginning that retribution was not on the table, that forgiveness was the order of the day. And we're talking about forgiveness for decades of systematic abuse, murder, rape, pillaging, all kinds of this is this is tough stuff. And had they wanted to burn the country to the ground, they could have done so. Had they wanted to murder as many of their white oppressors as they wanted to, they could have. But Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and those were convinced that that would just come. All it would do is, is, is turn the wheel again. The cycle would continue. And so the only way to break the cycle is to break it completely and say, no, retribution is not the order of the day. And so this third way, this, that is very, very difficult. And I've never gotten any, I've never gotten any more pushback or any more argument from people than when I talk about nonviolence and when I talk about, you know, leaving retribution behind and, and, and somehow this third way of, of oppressed and oppressor both being restored, you know, that, that Christ can, can come into situations and, and those who we think are irredeemable are not irredeemable. But it's somehow unsatisfying for them to not get what's coming to them. How, how did we get I, – I, I've ministered for a long time in the Bible Belt like you have. Uh, it seems like Texas would probably be very similar to Alabama as far as our addiction to violence and vengeance. And, and really just the whole macho Rambo Jesus thing that you mentioned earlier. How did we, how did we as the church – how did we – who are called to turn the other cheek? How are we who are called to forgive 70 times seven? How do we get so addicted to violence and vengeance? I think, uh, I think a key in this is eschatology of all things. So I was raised in evangelical charismatic church. One thing they all had in common was, uh, is it was an eschatology that says that Jesus is coming back and his version of setting everything to rights is to lay waste to his enemies and so there's, you know, we have the book of Revelation that that seems to depict Christ coming back in, in a wave of violence and bloodshed. And and that's the Jesus that that some of these folks are really clinging to. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very dispensational view that says the Jesus of the Gospels was was fine for for that time. But, you know, at some point he's his patience and his mercy is going to run out. Right. He had to keep his hands clean of the blood up until the cross. But now he's pissed off and coming for vengeance. Right, right. And here, you know, he's going to look like he's going to have those, uh, you know, that that machine gun strapped to his chest and he's going to come back. And, you know, Brian Zahn was one of the first ones that began to teach me how to read Revelation a little differently. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Martin Luther wanted to ditch it out of the Bible completely. So <laughs> there, there goes your theory of inerrancy. We couldn't even decide, you know, he wanted to throw out a few books. But um, but in Brian Zahn's view, the book of Revelation is a is a, a critique of empire. You know, and and it's it's worth pointing out that when Jesus's robe is dipped in blood, that it's his own blood it's dipped in, not the blood of his enemies. And so it's not the blood of his enemies. Uh, there is still a wall, uh, Texas. I feel it, comp- but I don't think it's unique to Texas. I just think we do it better than anybody else. But there is still a wall that divides. You know that that says you know this that nonviolence is weakness. That that we have the right to stand up and defend ourselves, and you know what? Listen, I'm 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 not dogmatic about this anymore. I can't be. I don't know how I would respond if faced with a violent situation. And so, and that's always the question, isn't it? Well, what do you do when somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, wants to kill your wife, and blah blah blah? What do you do? Well, I've never faced that situation, so I'm not going to stand here and say that I would do X, Y, or Z. But I'm committed to. As, to the best of my ability, I really am committed to nonviolence, and I really am committed to the way of peace. And so 
when when the when the knee jerk reaction is violence, you know, there's there, there's no room for creative solutions. We just go to the we go to that solution first because it's expedient, and it's fast, and it's assured. But I think the third way of Jesus calls for creativity. It calls for us to approach situations differently. And when we put violence off the table, our hand is forced to look at things a little differently. Yeah. I think one of the most honest responses I ever heard to that question, that question that you raised about what would you do if you know somebody had a gun to your wife's head or your child's head? I think it was Bo Hoffman who said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope that I would be committed to nonviolence. I hope that I would look for the miracle, that I would give God a chance to work in that moment without responding in kind. Um, I think that's probably the most honest answer we can give unless we're in that situation, you know? Yeah. And I think it's the, you know, anybody who says differently is, is again, they're, they're posturing on some level. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Most of what I, most of what I believe is, is founded in hope, you know? I hope that would be my response. I'm hopeful about a lot of things, but certainty uh, is, is a luxury I can no longer afford. All right. So after serving as a worship leader in your local church for several years, you made plans to start another local church in the same community. Is that right? That is correct. All right. Now I've done that and it's really, really messy. <laughs> so how did you navigate that transition without blowing up your town? You know what? It was really so. Here's here's an interesting thing. The church I told you about in the beginning, where things all kind of went to hell. Part of that church for me blowing up like that was this pastor that I served with later had left that church to plant a church, and that went badly. Like it went as badly as you can imagine it would go. It went that way, and so I stayed. I didn't go with him, and I became one of those who stayed behind and pointed fingers and complained that he was stealing our church members to, you know, blah, blah. It was all garbage. It was all crap. But, and he's who I went to when this thing began to fall apart. So I remember early on, probably this is like 2006 or five. I don't know. My years get all messed up. But anyway, I remember having coffee with him at some point saying, Hey, I need to hear your side of the story because all the stuff I've heard sounds weird. And so we had coffee, we started talking and <laughs> the weird thing was I got turned in to the pastor. So I got called into his office. He's like, "So I see you're having you're having coffee with this guy." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, he's my friend." And he's like, "Oh, well, isn't that interesting?" You know. <laughs> and uh, we were we were on the way out. So th this guy, I, I say all of that not to point fingers or whatever, but but to point out that when I that was the guy's church that I went to go work for. And so he and I had both been through this process already of having our characters assassinated, you know, having having lies told about us, having it was you know, having having something that was not a church split painted as though it were like we were stealing, like, you know, all that silly stuff. Right. When I went to him to talk about planting a new church, um, there was there was just a resolve from the get go that that we wouldn't do it like it had been done before, um, that he would be supportive and that he would be on board. And so actually within about two weeks, uh, he had us up in front of the church and my wife and I and telling the church that we were starting a new church and, and he was super excited about it. He was on board with it. And if anyone in the room felt like they should go help me with it, they should totally go and help me with it. And that he was, and I, and I, likewise, I said, you know, I, I still claim him as my pastor. I still a guy I talk to and whose advice I seek out. And uh matter of fact, he donated a bunch of equipment to our new church and helped us get started in the venture. And so that part of it all went swimmingly, if that makes, you know, if, if I can use that term better than I could have expected. But again, we've both been We've both been beat up by this before. 
And so uh, I, I would have been shocked if he had done to me what had been done to him. But, you know, stranger things have happened. That, Like I said, that part was pretty easy. We, we did not approach this church plant the way that I think a lot of people approach them. There was a severe lack of planning. There was, you know, <laughs> profound naivete. But and no and no money and no money so you listen if you <laughs> if you have the right set of circumstances you can start a church with no money you know what i mean yeah a matter of fact in fact i i resolved to not read anybody's books on how to church plant because they all say the same thing make sure you got a war chest right make sure you got a hundred thousand dollars in the bank make sure you got that, that, that you know what i mean yes and i'm like i'm like i'm not doing any of that because the kind of church we're interested in starting does not revolve around the brightly lit stage you know does not revolve around um, a celebrity pastor and all the trappings of modern evangelicalism i thought i'm like we can do this on the cheap it's just church man it's people sitting around a room talking about Jesus. And so we got very fortunate with some friends who had um, remodeled a firehouse downtown in San Angelo and had turned it into a, a bed and breakfast. And they have plans for the downstairs area at some point to open a restaurant. But in the meantime, we get to use that space for free. And so we have a free space to meet in. It's a very rustic. <laughs> You've seen the videos. <laughs> so, you know. We got equipment piled in the corners. We got, you know, all of the stuff that we would have, you know, would have just shamed us in the years past. I mean, it's not, you know, it's it's as decorated as, as, as you know, we can get away with. But it, it, to me, it's very organic and it's very open and friendly and and uh, everything that we want for now and, and what a church should look like. So in a season when so many people seem to be leaving the local church to save their faith, why did you decide that your community needed another church? Here's here's what I decided. I decided that I still really believe in the local church, that I still really believe in uh, the ecclesia, you know, that, that, that we're called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And what I'm disappointed in most with churches is not, you know, it's uh, I'm disappointed in the bad theology. I'm disappointed in things like that, but I'm disappointed in the lack of community involvement. I'm disappointed in um, how much of a church's resources go to itself, to become this self-sustaining entity, you know, that that's sort of there for our own edification. And and outside the, the walls of those churches, little to nothing gets done. I thought I would like to have something that more reflected those values that said, listen, we want to be a part of this community. We want to be involved with what's going on here. So what we've done is already in our, in our, we're in our infancy, obviously we've only been, you know, we've gone on six weeks of being a church. So don't take what I have with, you know, too much seriousness yet. I take it with a grain of salt, but uh, we're beginning to partner with other churches in our town. We're beginning to find places where we can put our, put our shoulder to the plow as it were, and just begin to do some things. You know, the other part of this that I thought was interesting, and, and I had talked to Brad Jurisag about this a few times. And if, you know, I know, you know, Brad, and he's a, one of my favorite people on the planet, but I told him that I wanted, I had envisioned a church that was a blend of the contemporary and the traditional, you know, I, I, I can't do a liturgical church. I, I just, I just can't bring myself to, to do a fully liturgical church. Um, but I do see the value and the beauty in liturgy. He's, he, he thought that was a, a fine idea. <laughs> it's like, and, and you're, you're just the guy to do what he says. I'm like, that's great. And typical Brad fashion. So, what we're looking for, you know, one of the things that we do here at, at Open Table is is that we have communion every Sunday, you know, which is something that I've never done in a traditional or in a, in a 
you know, evangelical church. Um, it was always the first Sunday of the month we did communion and we passed around these little wafers. And, um, but we, we decided that we would, we would share a meal. We would have a, you know, obviously a symbolic meal, but we would have, we would have the Lord's supper every Sunday, which is something we've done for the last six weeks. We would introduce some pieces of traditional liturgy, like the, the apostles creed. Cause I'm, I'm always a little bit taken aback by, by how little of that gets done in the evangelical church, you know? It was not till my walk to Emmaus that I think I ever heard the Apostles' Creed. And so, you know, there's a lot of people running around with just big gaping holes in their theology because they don't they, they don't even have some of the basic stuff. And so I remember I was at Brian Zahn's church in St. Joseph a couple of years ago, and I saw him do some of this, you know, that they would recite the Apostles' Creed together and they would take communion every Sunday. And I'm like, wow, you know what, that is an interesting blend of the of the contemporary and the traditional bringing some of those pieces in. That's uh, that's what we thought. So how has the community there responded to that blend? Uh, so far, very good. When we, when we, I had thinking of one guy in particular, I won't name him because he might listen to the podcast at some point, but when we were doing our sort of launch, you know, meetings, our pre-launch stuff, he would come over and we, we began to talk about some of this and it put him off and he ended up not coming along with us because he just couldn't wrap his head around some of it. And that's, that's, that's fine. But uh, I actually had him in church last week to help me play some music. And his response afterwards was, okay, well, that, that, that went differently than I thought it was going to go. I kind of like it. The response has been very interesting. I have one older lady who comes to church now, and she's been there pretty much every week. And she just hugs me every, 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 every week after service and just says, thank you. Thank you for this. It's, uh, this means so much to me. I miss this. I've had an interesting we have a very diverse group age wise everywhere from you know teenagers to you know octogenarians a very diverse background as far as uh their faith traditions the response has been pretty interesting you know we're uh, we're already having to look for probably have to look for a bigger space because we're probably going to outgrow this one pretty soon that's awesome when we were talking to your brother john last week um he mentioned during his season where he was kind of turning back towards faith uh, that he called on you as, as somebody he could trust to help him navigate that season. He was kind of thinking about going back towards local church, and you cautioned him to be very hesitant and very careful. What needs to be avoided in mainstream church once we're coming through a, a deconstruction season, starting to reconstruct something hopefully healthier, something beautiful? What is it that we need to be on guard against? in the local church. So yeah, John called me and he says, uh, now we'd been having some conversations, you know, I'm sure he told you his story somewhat that in a season where he'd broken his leg and had a lot of downtime, that he was weak and vulnerable. And my dad got to him. <laughs> That's what he said. With yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there I was with nothing to do. And C.S. Lewis grabbed a hold of him and <laughs> did what C.S. Lewis often does. John's a very rational guy. And so a guy, it would, it would take a C.S. Lewis to get to John, you know, because a reasoned approach to faith. Um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so he starts to feel this, this call and he calls me and he says, uh, well, I really feel like I need to get back in church. And I literally, I think I yelled, no, no, you don't. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, whoa, hold up. That, wh wh what's up with that? And so, well, I said, first of all, I know your town. I, I, I don't say this glibly, but I know the town he lives in and I know the churches that are there and most of them scare the hell out of me. And so what I'm, what I, what I'm cautious of when I what I look out for are these remnants of authoritarianism, which I still think is the hallmark of most modern evangelical churches today. 
um, that pastors have passed themselves off as paragons of truth, not to be questioned, not to be pushed back against, um, and they they somehow wield some biblical authority, which even saying that sentence makes me want to throw up a bit. And so I cautioned him against that. What I ca- what I what I what I counseled him to do was to spend a lot of time reading and get a pretty firm foundation for himself of what he believed and what he thought was true and right. That way, at at the very least, when he would go to visit a church, he would have something to measure against and say, nope, not this one. This is, this was terrible. And the other part of it was that I knew that the same system and that that the same apparatus that was in place, which caused John to leave the church in the first place, John never left Jesus. John, John left institutional church. He left the hypocrisy and the bullshit of, of institutional church. And that was still there and prevalent. And so I said, listen, all the, all the reasons you left church in the first place, man, uh, they still exist. And so if you're hoping to go back and, and, and not see those things still in play, um, I'm just afraid you're going to be disappointed and it's going to knock you off your horse again. So I am a firm believer that, that one not need attend church to be a good believer, follower of Jesus. It's not, it's not a requirement, man. No, and I said at my first week standing in front of my church, I said, you don't, you don't have to be here. I'm not going to stand here. That's very disingenuous of me to stand there and say, you know, because I need you here, you need to be here. I'm also a firm believer that we do life better together and that having a support system is good and that having people around you is good and that it's not good for man to be alone. I think that's true. But I'm also just as convinced that you can have church at the local pub that you can have church around your dinner table with your family, that Christ is present and all of those things. And those, all of those moments can be holy and sacred. If the church does not exist to move beyond itself, then it's just masturbatory. It's, it's just there for its own self-gratification and to perpetuate itself. And, and what I see at play in so many churches today is, again, I, say, I see these tons of these resources you know, that, that are just simply poured back into themselves. And I wonder what's the, what's the point and what's the purpose except to elevate some above others, to leave you on a Sunday with a feel-good. You know, to me, that's pointless. I'd rather him not go to church than to have to wade through that garbage. And so he got hooked up with a Calvary Chapel church, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Calvary Chapel, but the pastor he got hooked up with was a good guy and tolerated a whole bunch of questions and gave John some space to operate and begin to you know, feel his own sense of calling into ministry. And then when he departed there, I'm sure he talked to you about the church that he's currently serving at that is, has its own challenges, you know? Sure. Yeah, they all do. And uh, they all do. They all do. You know, and (laughs) I would be dishonest if I didn't say that part of my reason for, for planting my own church was I got tired of not being able to say what I want to say. I get tired of having to constantly couch everything in, you know, in, in terms that makes things more palatable for some folks and you know, begin to start to talk about things like biblical infallibility and LGBTQ inclusion and, you know, that I don't believe in the rapture or, you know, and, uh, well, that's all fine that you can believe those things. Just please don't say them from the pulpit because people will get mad. Yeah. Right. And, and, and don't talk about it on social media because, you know, you reflect the church every time you talk on social media. And, and so there was some constraints that at first I could live with. And I believe John's in the same boat. Some constraints that for a time you can say, okay, fine, I can, I can do that until you can't. And then, and then you just, you have to decide to, you know, let the chips fall where the chips fall. We've decided that the, the people who will be with us will be with us. If the things that I say, are offensive to some, then I'm sorry. Um, my intention is not to offend, but neither is it to coddle and, you know, 
you know, reinforce everyone's own personal biases on some of these things. So um, I did warn everybody who had come to church that my job, I felt, was to challenge them somewhat and to put some of their beliefs up on the altar and see if they see if they survive. It's really interesting to me that the same reasons that you planted a church or felt led to plant a church are the same reasons that I felt led to close a church and start a podcast instead. Just being able to own a more faithful, genuine version of yourself in public, be able to say things that you can't say in other circles. Um, I, I love the fact that you have the courage to do this with a group of people in community uh, around the table of Jesus that isn't our table that we don't decide the guest list on. I love what you're doing, and I'm so excited about the future of Open Table. Uh, tell me this, what does the church you dream of look like? The church that I dream of looks like, if I'm being really honest, it looks like what it looks like right now. Uh, uh, we're living what I dream church can be right now. Now, mind you, I think it can be it can be better, but it I, I, I see a church that is that is at its very heart inclusive. You know that, that as you just said that that we don't decide the guest list and we don't pre prejudge people before they walk in the door, and that there are. For the moment right now, we, we have the, the luxury of sitting around a table. We literally have tables in our church. And so we have six or eight round tables that people can sit around. And, and I hope that stays something that's viable for the future. But around these tables, I see these families begin to form and come together. Belinda, I begin to see these people who are, who are living disparate lives, who somehow find some common bond in the things they're going through. We'll, we'll talk this week in church about suffering. And it may be may, maybe the suffering is the great unifier. You know, we all suffer, and there's 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 no escape. There you go. There's my sermon for the week. Everyone suffers. There's no escape. So I, I you know, I drink. That's the church that I envision. You know, is one that that is willing to do, go through the messy parts of life together. That is willing to, you know, lay their principles. Uh, my, I have I actually have an associate pastor. His name is Todd, and he preached a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things he said that struck me was that. You know that that when we when we place our our spiritual principles above human life, you know that we've we've missed the gospel entirely, and and so so many times in my life I've seen this happen where my you know I'm just not going to compromise my principles, and meanwhile people are dying, you know, meanwhile people are being you know trampled under the wheels of institutional religion rather than reach out and say something we 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 stand on our principles well to hell with principles they're 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 sometimes less than than useless my my church that i would dream of would be one like that that's that's inclusive that's that's genuinely seeking christ and seeking the way of peace and that's willing to uh, uh meet people where they are well man i'm so grateful for this time with you today and i'm grateful for the work that you're doing there what else are you working on besides the church um did I project on you a book? Are you writing a book or did you just need to write a book? <laughs> I have, I have an idea for a book. Um, I've actually, I've actually begun to write it. Um, I'm just not very disciplined in sitting down and writing it, but I do, uh, I actually want to write a book about spiritual disciplines Awesome. that I think is something that again, coming from my, from my perspective and my background, something we never talked about or never participated in. And so there's a lot of that stuff that just kind of got thrown out with the Protestant Reformation that, well, we're not doing that anymore, you know. And so been reading a lot of Thomas Merton, you know, kind of coming to grips with, you know, things like contemplative prayer, liturgical prayer, things of that nature that, you know, 
so yeah, I've actually been in communication with uh, with Brad Jersak about helping me with it. He's he's absolutely willing to help me with it. Offered to write the forward for it. Now I just actually have to do the hard work of putting it on, you know, putting pen to paper and actually writing something. So, but that's something I'm working on. I've got I still play music. You know, I've still got some things I'm looking to uh, to do musically for the moment at my little church. I'm I'm the you should, I'm still the worship pastor and the and the lead pastor and the. Until I find someone to take that job off of me, I'm still doing that. So, but I still like, you know, that's something I still really enjoy. I like to play music. Yeah, it's really obvious. I've seen some of the videos of of your services, and you seem to enjoy yourself during worship as much as anybody I've seen. So, I'm I'm grateful that you still get to do that as well. Yeah, it's it's uh, like I said, it's it's fun for now. It, it adds a lot to the plate, makes the day kind of long. But yeah, sure. And you don't want it to be the Nat Turney show either. Exactly. You, yeah, I, and you actually got my phrase exactly as I stood there and said, I don't want this to be my, this is not about me. It happens to be me on the stage most of the time, which is why I'm sharing the pulpit. Another thing that I think is really interesting, and I don't know if I, I know I'm running towards the end of this thing, but um, we have purposed in our church to be very pro-women. And so we have women on our board, which no church I've ever been a part of has ever thought about doing that. Uh, we will have women in the pulpit. I'll ordain women. I'm I'm stoked about having that that perspective and that voice active in our church, and not just my wife doing announcements every week. You know, she's going to preach too because she's got because <laughs> she's got stuff to say. She's a um, she does. I follow her on Facebook. Oh, she's yeah. a preacher. She's a preacher. She's a so uh, anyway. That's that's when I, I should have thrown that into my you know what I envision the church to be. You know, well, you mentioned radically inclusive, and I think that's part of that, right? Yeah, it should. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 sad that that's radical. But but sadly, it, it, it is kind of. But anyway, we we it is in the Bible Belt. We, yeah. Well, we opted from the beginning, and we say it. For, you know, I've said it from the, the pulpit a few times that you know the women that are here are not decorative. They are not there. You know, just to check a box off. They are. They have voices, and they have. You know, they carry decision making power, and uh, and I'm interested in their perspective. You know. Awesome. That's good. Nat, how can folks uh, reach you if they've heard what you said today and they say, you know what, I've I've been on a really similar journey and I don't know what to do next. Uh, what's a good way to engage with you online? Honestly, the best way is just through Facebook. So either through my public figure page, which is Nat Turney Public Figure, F-I-G-G-E-R, which I for some reason thought was clever and now can't figure <laughs> out how to change <laughs> to... Uh, through my personal <laughs> okay. page, and then also through the church page, Open Table Fellowship, Church Beyond the Walls. Okay, we're going to put links to all of those in the notes for this episode. So friends, um, I hope you will check out Nat online on Facebook. Uh, as I say almost every week, Facebook is an absolute zoo. There are times it's more like a circus, but the reality is there are some really good people and good things happening there. And so that has made it worth me uh maintaining a presence on just so I can learn from people like Nat and his wife and his brother and so many others. And Nat, I'm so grateful for you, brother. I love you. I love what you're doing. And I'm looking forward to seeing what God will do in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.